My name is Justin Nicola. I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club. And today we're talking about the most famous helmet haired actor, Louise Brooks. There is no Garbo. There is no Dietrich. There is only Louise Brooks. Said Henri Lagrois while Louise Brooks was standing right beside him. I would probably say the same thing if she were right here, you know? <laughs> now, Louise Brooks is someone that I think defines Hollywood. Like, you think of old Hollywood stardom, and I think people will picture her because her look is so iconic. But what's funny about that is that you could then turn around and go, all right, name some movies that she's in that were made in Hollywood. And they'll be like, uh. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I mean, she's probably most famous as as an icon, I guess. I mean, she's very famous for the influence that her look has had over the years on, you know, just to name one person, Anna Karina. Her look is kind of indebted to Louise Brooks. And I mean, I've been interested in Louise Brooks for a long time, but I have to admit, I've been more interested in like, the old Louise Brooks, the one who was, you know, in her 70s, living in Rochester, writing articles for magazines like Sight and Sound and Positif about her years in Hollywood. I, I had seen a couple of her films over the years, but until this week, I had not seen the two films made in Germany that are the bedrock of her reputation. Maybe 10 years ago, I read her book, for the first time, Lulu in Hollywood, which was this collection of essays that she wrote, as I said, for all those film magazines. And, you know, it's one of the best film books ever written. She, she writes about people that she knew. There's an essay about W.C. Fields. There's an essay about Humphrey Bogart, both of whom she knew when she was in vaudeville. She writes about her own kind of brief stardom and protracted downfall. The book is so great, in addition to the quality of its prose, it's great because of how unvarnished and also unsentimental the book is in its depiction of Hollywood. It sort of shows Hollywood as this town that, you know, chews you up and spits you out. But it's also written with this really ferocious toughness, this, as I said, lack of sentimentality. I mean, I can, o I can only kind of speak for myself, but I feel like in the popular consciousness or the cinephile consciousness, there is a melding of screen persona with off-screen life with Louise Brooks. It's like she has this particular mystique because in those two iconic films, you know, she played these kind of like sexually liberated, beautiful women who had tremendous downfalls and were cast aside by society. And that's also sort of broadly what she was in real life, too. And so there's, there's a great mystique to her because of that. Yeah, I hadn't seen Pandora's Box or Diary of a Lost Girl. So when people have written about Louise Brooks over the years, they often write about her in, in these reverential tones, like trying to talk about her, you know, talk about the mystique, talk about her as this mythic figure. Henri Langlois wrote, for instance, as soon as she takes the screen, fiction disappears along with art, and one has the impression of being present at a documentary. The camera seems to have caught her by surprise, without knowledge. She embodies all that cinema rediscovered in the last years of silence complete naturalness and complete simplicity her art is so pure that it becomes invisible easy there Ari. <laughs> i mean louise brooks is iconic on screen that is undeniable and her performance are natural it's not reflective of what you would associate with early sound cinema or especially like early roles for women but i think that unfortunately because she had so few roles that really got to you know highlight her you can only look 
at her mythic status through the prism of Pandora's Box and Diary of a Lost Girl. And those films are both complete misery parades <laughs> where she is lifted up only to be taken down for two hours and 15 minutes. Well, you know, that's kind of the mystique of them too, isn't it? I mean, we'll we'll get back to those movies in a sec, but first, just a little bit of background on her life. Louise Brooks was born in Kansas in 1906. She was the daughter of a suffragette who abandoned the family actually pretty early on, but her mother worked very hard to turn her into sort of a child prodigy. She was dancing at a very young age. As a teenager, she danced with Martha Graham. The key fact about her childhood, and it's a very dark fact, is that at the age of nine, she was molested by a neighbor. And when she told this to her mother, the mother blamed her. So that it informed a lot of the way that she acted in her professional and personal life from that point on. I mean, do you think that is like a broad kind of blanket for the way that, you know, when people talk about the way she acted arrogantly, she always wanted to be in control. She partied. She fucked a lot that it kind of stems from that childhood of being abandoned, abused, and not treated with any respect? Well, I mean, I'm no psychiatrist. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's an easy thing to, like, slot into. Like, oh, yes, this explains her behavior. But, but I mean, you know, you, kn you know the stereotype, at least, mm -hmm. which in many cases is true, that if somebody is violated like that at such a young age, they can take control of their sexuality in a very aggressive sort of way. And it should be pointed out that, like, Louise Brooks didn't act any differently than, like, like any other male star around this time, but she's a woman. And so no studio heads would put up with that kind of business. When we were doing that episode on Mickey Rooney, mm -hmm. uh, like we both read that biography of him. Oh, what a fucking asshole. And there was an absolutely horrifying bit in that biography that I haven't been able to like scrub from my mind, which is that MGM basically had its own brothel. I'm not sure if it was on the studio lot or if it was just close to the studio lot. And it was basically a brothel that the studio paid for where like the male stars could go, mm. you know, relieve themselves. Oh my God. God. And like Louise Brooks was scarred on one of her experience as a co-star where she slept with one of the stuntmen and it became a joke on set after that. I, I think the director of that film, William Wellman, kind of had the hots for her and felt snubbed that she did that and so made life difficult for her. I mean, one of her appeals as a, as a star, and you can see that in basically everything ever written about her, was that I think she represented a kind of sexual transgression. Like, in her two most famous films, she plays women who are perceived by society as ladies of easy virtue, quote-unquote. And beyond that, you know, she has a small and lithe body that is often seen in tight and slinky clothes with plunging necklines. And she was representative of the whole flapper movement, a new kind of woman. But I think it's important as well that, like, in those movies, the ones that made her really popular, she wasn't a vamp. Now, she had appeared as a vamp in, like, brief little roles, like the Howard Hawks film, A Girl in Every Port. But specifically in Pandora's Box, she is mostly an innocent, and her sexuality is an open one but not like a femme fatale style of going about through the world wanting to destroy men. I'm not sure where to put this in the discussion, but I just think it's interesting that one of her most popular films, Beggars of Life, in that movie she spends most of it disguised as a boy. I think there's something sort of transgressive about that. She looks like a boy, you know, but she looks like a very cute boy. What do you do with that? Anyway, it's just an example of how she represents a certain kind of sexual transgression on screen a lot of the time. Mm, it, not a conventional one based upon, like, the stars that had come before. And that's what people, 
I feel like, because I wasn't around at the time, really responded to. And that's why she kind of rose so fast in the Hollywood scene, because not only was she out there, she made a lot of friends thanks to her, like, real big personality, including William Randolph Hearst, who she hung out at his mansion a lot. But, like, she made it right into Paramount did a bunch of roles and was starring in films much to the disgust of the male stars who thought that she hadn't earned the right to be a star. Her rise to fame is interesting. She danced on the New York stage. She was in a show called Scandals by George Witt, where she caught the attention of the critics, as well as George Gershwin, by the way, who she had a bit of a flirtation with. But her big star-making role on Broadway was in the Ziegfeld Follies, where she acted alongside W.C. Fields and Will Rogers. This was around 1925, which is the same year, by the way, that she had a brief affair with Charlie Chaplin, who was in New York promoting the gold rush. Ah, little dick Charlie Chaplin, as she would say herself. What, you know, one of my favorite facts about Louise Brooks is that when she lived in Rochester later on in her life, I read this in the book Magnificent Obsession about film collectors. She supposedly got banned from the Rochester library because she would write in the margins of books too much. And there was a copy of Chaplin's second wife, Lita Gray, autobiography called My Life with Chaplin, where it was just full of Louise Brooks's annotations talking about Charlie Chaplin's penis and like <laughs> how he wasn't very good in bed and this and that. <laughs> That's amazing. I, I would give anything to own that annotated. I would give five years of my life to have that copy of, of that book. <laughs> So once she did get into the film scene and started acting, she got a contract right away from Paramount. And I believe she was seeing the one of the heads of Paramount at the time. That's right. Walter Wanger was his name. And the contract was actually offered independently of him, but she took it anyway, even though Walter warned, oh, people are going to think that I got it for you. Ugh. Anyway, so she acted in a whole bunch of stuff. A lot of the films are actually lost if you look at her early uh, filmography. Some of them are still available, like her role in It's the old army game, the W.C. Fields picture, where she also met Edward Sutherland, the director, who wanted to marry her instantly. Oh man, I feel like uh, there's a trend here of directors, the person in power, being attracted to Louise Brooks, a star, and thinking that they should have some hold on her. Well, you know, I would probably be attracted to her too, in fairness. You're not allowed to do anything about well, it, Will. I, I wouldn't be a bad man like these people. Mm -hmm. I'd be a very good man. I'd be a very... <laughs> <laughs> what am I saying? Put that up in, in court when Will's brought up for trial. But she made all of these films in Hollywood. As you said, many of them are lost. And I think a lot of them, you know, were kind of ordinary factory line mm -hmm. movies. Some of the ones that survive are pretty good. Like A Girl in Every Port, the Howard Hawks movie is worth a look. It's the old Arby game you can get on Blu-ray from Kino now. And it's kind of funny. But her career downfall was rather sudden with the dawn of talkies by her account, and I see no reason to disbelieve it, studios wanted to use the new technology to cut more favorable deals with the actors. You know, they could say, well, we don't know how your voice is going to appeal to audiences. We're basically back at square one with you, so you're going to have to take a pay cut. And Louise Brooks said, hey, I've got a great voice, and, and I'm a huge star. I'm not going to agree to that. So she quit, and she was washed up at the age of 21. And supposedly, that's what the studio was doing with every actor, trying to utilize the fact that sound equipment had to be used to cut all their salaries right from the get-go. And this happened on a production called The Canary Murder Case, a 1929 film directed by Malcolm St. Clair. She writes about this pretty extensively in Lulu and Hollywood.
Hollywood, she sort of makes the case that like a whole generation of silent film actors were put out to pasture. Like this was a conspiracy among the studios, basically, to creating newer and cheaper force of stars. Oh, I don't think it was much of a conspiracy. I think it was probably all the studios finding a way that they could cut costs. (laughs) And so uh, according to her, basically every um, written example of how she ended up in Germany on the way out of the office after she was let go from the uh, Canary murder case, there was a telegram from G.W. Paps, a director who wanted her to star in Pandora's Box, a famous German stage play about a uh, woman named Lulu who, uh, due to her sexual openness, dooms all the men around her. And according to some sources, G.W. Paps had seen her in, I think it was A Girl in Every Port and was kind of hypnotized by her look and feel, which is why he wanted her to come over. And he dumped Marlene Dietrich from the list, who was supposedly right about to sign a contract. And Louise Brooks went to Germany to star in Pandora's Box. Which was not a great success at the time. This production, you know, it was a very popular play in Germany. And the casting process, it was like Gone with the Wind, you know, to get Scarlett O'Hara, where every every actress was in contention, you know, much publicity. And a, a lot of people in Germany, a lot of the German press felt that it was an insult that a, an American actress was cast in this iconic German role. Anyway, the film endures. She plays her most iconic role, Lulu, a woman who may or may not be a prostitute in the opening scene. She's been having an affair with a newspaper publisher, Dr. Ludwig Schon, but he wants to cut off the affair because he has decided to marry a politician's daughter. And, you know, as he says, you know, you you don't marry women like Lulu. And what ends up happening is, oh no, Lulu makes these men so jealous that murder has to be on the menu. And not only is murder on the menu, but she is to blame, for she is Pandora, and to open the box is to lead to doom! Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the way that the movie, I guess, is allowed to be made at this time. You know, she is Mm -hmm. someone, again, quote-unquote, a woman of easy virtue in this film. She's somebody who wants to have a good time, sexually promiscuous, and so, of course, she must be punished at the end. A spoiler, folks, punished by literally being killed by Jack the Ripper. It's a real crossover movie. I was, ah, yes, I was Jack surprised, the I have yeah. to say. <laughs> I mean, that's the, the way this movie gets discussed. Anytime it comes up, it's like, oh, yes, it's Louise Brooks' iconic role. Also, she gets killed by Jack the Ripper at the end. <laughs> but I mean, even so, even though that's how the movie is able to be made, I, I think one's sympathies are always on the side of Lulu watching it. I'm not sure. Oh, absolutely. I'm not sure to what extent that is G.W. Pabst's doing and to what extent it is the magnetic presence of Louise Brooks, the fact that you kind of can't help but love her. But I think it's a tale of suffering, right? And that's why the German people had such affinity for the play, that to watch someone who is innocent and while still open, then suffer throughout the film, your sympathies lie with this character, and that's why the affinity was so strong, and that people were angry that an American would play this role that is very particularly German. One of the reasons why Louise Brooks has been so durable as an icon is the fact that she was ahead of her time. She was a very understated screen presence a minimalist performer, which is not not to say that she was 
like Henri Langlois was saying that it's as if there was no acting, but of course there's acting there. It's like all of the spectrum of emotions register very strongly on her face. Those twinkling lights anytime there's a close-up in Pandora's box. Louise Brooks, she generated them herself! <laughs> but, you know, she's just a very disciplined screen presence, sort of like Buster Keaton, another minimalist screen actor. Yeah, she's a dancer, so she knows that, like, the big movements aren't necessary to sell any emotion. She's very controlled in the way that she acts, which makes the movements that much more realistic. But you can imagine a movie like Pandora's Box, and again, Pandora's Box came out in 1929, so it's one of the more sophisticated examples of silent filmmaking. It's when the silent era was at its technical and storytelling peak, but even so, you can imagine a different kind of performance style being applied to this. Yeah, like a big performance that you would see in like a D.W. Griffiths film or something like that. Yeah, sure. But nope, it's real, and I think that's why people are so moved by it even today, after such a distance. And there's an article written by Kenneth Tynan that Will brought to my attention, where he mentions like he saw it on TV, and just the image of Louise Brooks in this atmosphere resonated so much that it kind of haunted him. And I feel that's a haunting that struck many a person that stumbled upon Pandora's box since the time of its release. By the way, can I just say that that article is an interesting time capsule of how cinephilia has changed because Kenneth Tynan writes in that article of having seen Pandora's Box like 20 years before he wrote it and then 20 years later stumbling on the movie again on late night TV and being like, oh my god, it's it's that movie. I, I can't believe I'm seeing it again. And then being surprised to learn that Louise Brooks was living in Rochester and going to see her in Rochester and learning all about her life since then. Like, can you imagine a time when you would have just seen a movie and then you you would have no way of ever seeing it again, but just the image of Louise Brooks haunts you for the next 20 years? You can't just call it up in the Criterion channel. Yeah, now there's no mystery. We literally do like three clicks and we're watching it instantly if we have any interest. <laughs> all emotion dragged out of it because it's so immediate and at our fingertips. Yeah. We're watching it very clinically because we have to for this podcast. <laughs> mm-hmm, exactly. Crossing it off a list. G.W. Paps cranked out another Louise Brooks film in 1929, the same year that Pandora's Box was made, and that's Diary of a Lost Girl. And I feel like to talk about it is to tread over the same territory that we just discussed when it comes to Pandora's Box. Yeah, I don't think it's quite as good as Pandora's Box. I mean, Pandora's Box, I feel like less is... Less fog. Yeah, less fog. I, I love the end of Pandora's Box, those like foggy... Edgar G. Ulmer-esque London streets. Love it. Black and white fog. But yeah, Diary of a Lost Girl is more salacious for what it's worth. There's a lot more that happens, I would say. At times it feels like a serial that some chapters are cut out of it. (laughs) She plays, you know, an innocent young girl. In fact, the movie begins when she's having her first communion. However, you know, her father, a well-to-do druggist, is found to have impregnated the family's maid. And you know, Louise Brooks feels very betrayed by this, and one thing leads to another, and she finds herself impregnated by the manager of the store, and this leads to great scandal. So the the child, after it is born, is given up for adoption, and she is sent to a reformatory. But the reformatory is run by a sadistic woman who, get this folks, this woman is a lesbian. No! Oh goodness. So, you know, eventually she manages- Reform schoolgirls, Louise Brooks style. She manages to get out of there, but of course, 
it's out of the frying pan and into the fire because the kindly boarding house that she finds herself at next turns out to be a brothel. Please let me get off this misery train. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, I I don't want to spoil the rest of the movie. One thing leads to another. She ends up falling into fortune, but she doesn't forget her past. Let's just put it that way. Again, not as good as Pandora's Box, same territory. And GW Paps wanted to make more movies with Louise Brooks, but she said, nay. And she ended up going to France the next year to star in a film called Beauty Prize, which I only really know of because Edmund Greville, subject of a, an episode a couple of weeks ago, talked about how drunk and all over the place Louise Brooks was on the production because he worked as an assistant director on it. Well, G.W. Pabst told her that if she didn't clean up her act, she herself would end up like Lulu. And to some degree, his prediction turned out to be true. What are you talking about? She starred in a whole bunch of movies after that, like Empty Saddles with Buck Jones and Overland Stage Raiders with John Wayne. So I watched Overland Stage Raiders today. It's a trim 54 minutes long. It's from 1938. It's one of many westerns that John Wayne made at the low-budget Poverty Row Studios before he became a real star with Stagecoach. And who's that? Ray Crash Corrigan himself is the second build actor, the man in the gorilla suit. So great to see them together, a team. And I mean, there's not much to say about Overland Stage Raiders. It's a pretty fun B-Western. It's got horse chases, and it's got the shitty library music, and it's got everything. Holy shit! I just noticed looking at the credits, Arch Hall Sr.'s in this film. Wait, he is? Yeah! Oh my god, I miss- I miss- how did I miss that? And, oh sorry, we got off the beaten path. Louise Brooks is in this as well, and you get to hear her voice. Yeah, and you know, she's got a much more normal haircut, and there's really not much to say about Louise Brooks in this movie. She's totally fine, but this would be her final film. There was no more place for her, not even in shitty B-Westerns. She went back to Wichita in the late 30s, Eventually, she went to New York in the 40s, where she found that the only available line of work for, as she put it, a 36-year-old failed actress was to become a call girl. So she worked with an escort agency for a few years, became something of a recluse, became something of an alcoholic as well. Which, to many reports, she was by the time that she was acting in stuff like Pandora's Box. I see. Well, she got further and further into it. However, her story does not have the sad ending that Lulu's had. One of her friends at the time, one of her few friends at the time was, I I think, a talent agent of some kind who put her in touch with the film curator of the George Eastman House, the archive and museum in Rochester, New York. That that man's name, the curator's name was James Card. And he said something like, oh, God, I I would give anything to meet Louise Brooks. I I would love to know where she is. And this guy, the agent, says something like, oh, hey, I I know I know where she is. I know her. I'll I'll hook you up. Oh, they hooked up. All right. Did they like that? Has that been? confirmed (laughs) i mean that's what it said in a book that i recently read on film preservation well you know what good for them living the dream yes anyway in the 50s he convinced her to move to rochester where she could live near the george eastman house in those years she honed her craft as a writer she honed off drinking somewhat she saw many young fans who who came through town she was able to go to paris meet henri langlois and the french critics and see all her movies again and see them screened and like see that people appreciated her work as well that she wasn't just some forgotten footnote that she was an icon that people continued to talk about even though that it was decades removed from the time of the film's releases and she did all this writing that was so great like i'm just going to read a paragraph of prose that she wrote about wc fields she wrote 
No, it wasn't fame that distorted fields. It was sickness and the clutching fear of being discarded to die on the Hollywood rubbish heap. If he must play a nasty old drunk in order to work on the Edgar Bergen radio show, so be it. He was an isolated person. As a young man, he stretched out his hand to beauty and love, and they thrust it away. Gradually, he reduced reality to exclude all but his work, filling the gaps with alcohol whose dim eyes transformed the world into a distant view of harmless shadows. He was also a solitary person. Years of traveling alone around the world with his juggling act taught him the value of solitude and the release it gave his mind. Most of his life will remain unknown, but the history of no life is a jest. I think that the real sad part is that she didn't get to write more. Lulu in Hollywood is such a slim volume. I know. And she passed away just a few years after it was published. Well, but the legacy lives on. Isn't that a corny thing to say? Yep, it is. But you know what? It's true. (laughs) Because if there's anything about Louise Brooks, it's legacy. And the fact that even though she doesn't have that strong of a filmography, she will always be an iconic presence that will continue to be remembered and brought up anytime somebody thinks of the era when she worked. Well, Justin, do we have any letters this week? We do have letters, and as per usual, you can send us letters at Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. And our first letter is from Scott Morris, and it's the subject line is Yesterday's Ron Howard's. <laughs> Hey, Justin and Will. I want to thank you guys for getting me interested in cinema in a deeper way than I once was. There was a time when I described myself as more of a horror fan than a cinephile, but now I'm the sort of person who tries to locate the directorial stamp of Victor Fleming and has seen four Edgar G. Ulmer movies. So be proud of your influence on the film fans of today. Thank you very much for that. We're glad that we're shaping young minds or old minds, whatever the case may be. I'm curious, what is the directorial stamp of Victor Fleming? I've been unable to find it. Ooh, maybe an upcoming episode where we have to sit down and watch, like, Duel in the Sun? Let's do it. Did he direct that? I think that was, um... King Vidor? Yeah, we'll have to kind of break down the sections of Wizard of Oz that he actually directed and figure out, ah, what is his stamp on this? Yeah, what were the 20 minutes of Gone with the Wind that he directed? So, the letter continues, I have two questions. I rewatched Nosferatu recently with the restored original score, and was surprised to find that it was whimsical, at times comic. It changes the mood of the film a lot, and fits with some of the sillier images sequences more than the somber horror scenes I've heard before. And it comes across almost like a parody of Dracula. This mix of the silly and the macabre seemed to have been Murnau's signature given Faust and Sunrise. But Nosferatu is widely regarded as a very serious horror film. I suspect largely because it is usually scored like one. What are your thoughts on music and on silent film? Are you very particular about it? Do you try and locate the original score if one existed? I mean, personally for me, I try to get a musical score that does not sound too modern, which you often get with silent films if you try to check them out in new releases like, ah, it's a Philip Glass score. Yeah, I'm not wild about like super modern scores either, although uh, I can be persuaded otherwise. You know, I have a soft spot for the 80s version of metropolis the recut that makes it like 85 minutes well i mean i'm not crazy about that but i kind of like the giorgio moroder music and all of the pop music that he curated i mean that's a radical reimagining of a film though as opposed to like oh this is the way the film is supposed to be watched and like there's a certain guy in toronto who will remain nameless <laughs> who at his at his theater he often shows nosferatu his theater <laughs> his yeah his theater he often shows nosferatu set to the music of radiohead 
like Kid A and OK Computer. And it, it works better than you think it might. I think that Nosferatu, the look of it is so iconic that it will always be viewed as a horror film. Because you could play like rinky dink music over it and show it to a kid and they'll be scared as hell by the way that Max Shrek looks. I gotta say though, I've seen like live performances of like live music set to silent movies that have been good, but I've also seen bad ones. And a lot of the bad ones are people who just sort of improvise a score without really thinking about how it interacts with what's on screen. Like I saw a once like a weird kind of like jazz troupe or something do a sort of like free form score that was set against a Charlie Chaplin movie. And it was uh, terrible, actually, because it's like for the thing to work, the music has to sort of like complement what's on screen in some way. Like it has to be upbeat when there's an upbeat scene. It has to be tragic when there's a tragic scene, you know? I've uh, seen some silent film composers, ones that work today that do like improv over like shorts or movies. And the thing that one of them talked about was it's not about what music you play. It's how you play it. Yeah, that defines the mood of the scene because you don't want the viewer focusing too much on the music. You just want it, like Will said, to complement what's going on. And that's how you play. Like you can play a sad version of Happy Birthday over a sad scene and it'll work because it sounds sad. So uh, the letter writer continues, I've been scrolling through the Internet Archive's copy of Saris's American Cinema. Ah, you didn't do the work and have to go dig through used bookstores to find one. <laughs> and I wonder what you guys think of the phenomenon of directors who were once considered major artists, but whose status has been diminished by changing tastes and the increasing influence of auteur scholarship. William Wyler, John Huston, George Stevens, Robert Wise, Fred Zinnemann, etc. From what I can tell, many people define themselves as auteurists still disdain these guys, and even a certain filmmakers are still considered classics, these directors seem to have less of a following than many of their contemporaries. Are they indeed empty prestige directors? The Ron Howards of classic Hollywood? Are they innocent victims of old critical flame wars? Some of these guys disliked by the auteurist school, like Wilder and Lean, are as beloved as ever. I've become a lot more interested in the auteurist lens recently, but I still find myself skeptical of the persnickety dogma some people devote themselves to, and it's hard to be offended by the white elephant art of yesterday when today's mainstream fare makes it look so damn good in comparison. It's funny, the directors that he names, like John Huston, Robert Wise, I'm forgetting the other ones, but you know, like the big old white elephant guys of the past. Some of them I think are like quite good. Or oh, have William made... Wyler's great. Oh yeah, yeah, he's amazing. You know, they've made very good films, like the be the best years of our lives, for God's sake. It's an incredible film. But like, I don't know, we've never done any, any of those guys, have we? I brought up John Huston, and you were like, because John Huston was a guy he could be really on, and he could be lazy as hell as well. I don't know. I I think it's just first of all like what you like obviously if 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 you love those guys that's Boo, fantastic otorist stuff sucks if it's too dogmatic but i mean i i can only speak for myself here i think a lot of the way that i relate to cinema is the way that i relate to any art form which is that there are certain creators who have personalities that i like to spend time with like i don't know weirdly i'm like kind of forgiving of a lesser edgar g ulmer movie because I mean, I don't know, it's funny, like, I see certain of his visual tics, I see certain of his stylistic flourishes, and I'm like, ah, it's nice to be in the company of the master, you know? It's nice to it's nice to be with this guy that I like. As opposed to people that are working through the Hollywood machinery, where you're like, oh, why don't you have a distinct kind of theme or visual look that I can follow, Robert Wise? I mean, look, I'm not gonna say that Edgar G. Omer's Juke Joint is a better film than Ron Howard's Apollo 13. Ron Howard! Howard's just kind of boring, though. 
I mean, you know what I am? Actually, you know what I am going to say? it Because I like Edgar G. Elmer, and I like hanging out with him, even when he's making juke joint. I remember reading Ron Howard, very proud that he was a journeyman, where he's like, you gotta bring a different style to every film you make. And to that I say, yeah, you gotta bring some kind of style, Ron. You gotta bring something, not just yeah. nothing. And, okay, have you seen Rush? Yeah, I've seen Rush. It's fine. It's fine. I, I'm yeah. still burnt from that Ron Howard episode we did, like, three years ago. I think if it feels like some of those directors that he mentioned don't have the same following, I, I think that can be attributed to the fact that, like, it, it, the following that those people have is oftentimes for individual films, not so much for the body of work as a whole. Like, Well, they were all often very prolific as well. Yeah, and, you know, the, the people who devo- inspire devotion seem to be the ones who have a personality that people can latch on to when is the dark horse of vulgar tourist the real ron howard heads gonna rear their heads well the next vulgar tourism is uh, you know actually i'm gonna not continue this train of thought because i don't want to get into a discussion of vulgar tourism how about just otourism the black sheep tourism i guess otourism is kind of out of fashion these days you know yeah i mean like you said it's about personality that's why i would go to a new film made by a filmmaker is that i've been interested in what they've done before and i'm just interested in what they do next that's how it goes i mean yeah there there are filmmakers who you know if they have a new one it's very exciting to get that new dispatch from Mm -hmm. whoever it is like jackie chan like jackie chan (laughs) he's a perfect example how low will he go low very low you know i i felt this way watching rifkin's festival i have to say It, it was funny to watch rifkin's festival and be like okay this is what he's like when he's working at absolute rock bottom you know like when he's just acting entirely rote entirely unthinking and it's and it's like that's interesting <laughs> you're like oh and i thought that irrational man was rock bottom for woody and here we are so anyway i've lost the thread of the answer to that now i'm just like talking about increasingly more obscure things yeah, I'm sorry rifkin's to anybody festival the real Rif- underground film these days rifkin's festival vulgar tourism these are things that people many people listening to this podcast won't even know what they are and i'm sorry to be alienating like that yeah sorry we've alienated the louise brooks fans who have tuned in so what are we doing on our patreon this week will well speaking of people who straddle the line between auteur and journeyman we are talking about a film by francis ford coppola but not just any film by francis ford coppola we're talking about his worst film that's right we're talking about jack starring robin williams uh maybe one of us makes a defense that it's his best (laughs) maybe maybe who knows you'll have to listen to find out it's five dollars a month at patreon slash the important cinema club you what couldn't we even say next? that with a straight face because <laughs> it's <can>. like <laughs> a big but, smile broke across my face obviously none of us are defending <laughs> jack as his best <laughs> film i think it may be the one patreon episode where we both come out first sentence each like just full of vitriol for what we just watched <laughs> all right well what are we doing next week Next week, the Important Cinema Club podcast is going on a field trip. We are venturing to a new country. We are going to Indonesia and exploring its genre cinema. Yeah, we're not going to be doing like, ah, let's explore Indonesian cinema specifically like as an export. No, we're going right to the good stuff. So blood, guts, supernatural, Lady Terminators. I mean, look, Indonesian genre cinema is something I've wanted to explore for a while. It looks pretty wacky. It looks pretty out there. I I've seen at least one classic Indonesian genre film, a movie called Lady Terminator that has a bit of a cult following. What what else might we watch this week? 
I think that you should definitely watch Satan's Slave, the original version, which was a big hit when it came out, and a remake actually happened just a few years ago. And I think that you should also check out Queen of Black Magic, which is one of the rare films that has English subtitles and stars Susanna, who was a big popular actor in horror cinema coming out of Indonesia. Can't wait. Looking forward to this one. So crack open those copies of Mondo Macabro and dive right in. So until next week, my name's Justin the Clue. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. Did you see the new trailer for the Nicolas Cage film that, like, uh, Neon is putting out? It's real serious, Nick Cage. Tra- looking for his pig. But, like, not a martial arts version or anything like that. Just, you know, him acting serious to the point that the trailer even starts with Academy Award winner Nicolas Cage. So, wait, is this kind of a prestige yes, movie? Yes, it is a prestige picture. Okay, that that's interesting because Nicolas Cage doesn't do a lot of those anymore. Well, I feel like in the last few years, I don't know if Nick Cage paid off the debts that he owed, but it seems like he's been making choices of stuff that he's genuinely interested in as opposed to like, oh, I got a star in this really uh, shitty action film because I need to pay back the like dinosaur skull I stole. He's made more movies with... I guess, auteur types. Like, he made the movie by Badman Richard Stanley, Mm -hmm. and he made a film by Sion Sono, didn't he? Yep. Uh, A couple other ones. Yeah, I mean, he also starred in stuff like Jiu-Jitsu, but, you know, it seems like he's actually having fun in those movies, as opposed to, like, I have to contractually be here, and then you can get a double to just, like, be my back for the rest of the film. Yeah, it's hard to know with him, because, like, obviously he did so many movies to pay off his back taxes, but then he also seems to want to actually cultivate this career where he's like, well, he's called himself the California Klaus Kinski, which I guess means that he wants to be like in a lot of weird and disreputable movies and give strange performances in them. He still has his Charlie Kaufman ripoff film that's about to come out at some point. It shot. It used to have a date, but I guess it got taken away. The unbearable weight of massive talent. Right. That's a movie that's coming out where Nicolas Cage plays himself. That sounds incredibly tedious and difficult to watch. That's some real Toronto Film Festival Midnight Madness. Oh, you know what that is. That's a real look inside the mind of Charles Swan III. (laughs) Yeah, I'm I'm not really that excited about that. I mean, okay, I don't know anything about this pig movie, but... I would like to see Nicolas Cage do some more stuff that's not, like, either action movie Nicolas Cage or wacky Nicolas Cage. I would be interested to see him, like, hit some different notes. You're about to get some uh, wacky Nick Cage with the untitled Joe Exotic TV miniseries that's coming, where he plays, guess who? Joe Exotic! You remember the Tiger King? Like, a hundred years ago? We all watched it. Now he's back in Nicolas Cage form. (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure that'll be a very silly bonanza. Or maybe It'll be dead serious, but I highly doubt that. I mean, at least Nick Cage is trying. Oh, man, doing the Bay Street Video podcast every time there's a new Bruce Willis film, which is six times a year. What what a bummer that is. Oh, that's too bad. He's now starring in, like, shitty sci-fi films. <laughs> you know, the, the real bottom of the barrel. I'm curious who is watching those Bruce Willis movies, because with late period Steven Seagal, he's at least funny. Like, mm. you can at least laugh at those movies. I mean, do people still like Steven Seagal? 
so I don't I don't know, but I I doubt it. But I remember ten years ago, I had a friend who worked at Blockbuster, and she told me that like whenever a new Steven Seagal movie came out, there was a loyal contingent of ordinary people who just enjoyed like not huge, but a loyal contingent of ordinary people who'd be like, yeah, when's the new Seagal movie out? Yeah, but couldn't you just like give them an old Seagal movie and be like, here you go, and they wouldn't <laughs> be any wiser? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the the thing about Seagal now is like it's it's kind of undeniable how how bad he is on screen I oh mean, man we got to return to that seagal well at some point for a patreon episode oh please i love watching steven seagal pick movies. like a pick a newer movie that came out like, has he done anything lately I don't think he has is he just God. like chilling in like a russian mansion these days seagal had such an assembly line going for a while but i guess maybe the direct-to-video market kind of cratered wait didn't we talk about his newer film on a patreon episode recently remember we watched the new one that he was really proud of absolution attrition, attrition i think it was called that's right. although he probably has made a movie called absolution as well <laughs> he just the last movie that's credited here is beyond the law yeah, he's getting back into the Beyond game and the Law game that came out in 2019. So it's I'm actually interested in the Beyond the Law because it co-stars the late DMX. Really? And he currently has on his IMDb Above the Law 2, a sequel to 1988's Above the Law. Yeah, I'll believe that when I see it. I mean, you know, maybe it'll be like a JCVD, like, ah, oh, my life is gone to shit uh, kind of thing. <laughs> So he's got, Seagal's got another movie. I'm glad that we made it all the way to Seagal in this conversation, by the way. I can talk about Seagal forever. Seagal on IMDb here has a movie that is allegedly in pre-production called The Tip of the Spear. And there is reason for optimism and also reason for dread. Oh, no! Because the optimism is that the the one of the two writers is Steven Seagal. So that could be funny. And also director. Oh, no, there's no director here. Oh, it's going to be directed by Keone Waxman, who's the other credited director. He sucks, man. Yeah. So that's the reason for not optimism. Keone Waxman has made... Okay, by the way, I, I just checked Keone Waxman's page. Steven Seagal has made a movie called Absolution. <laughs> 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 but but yes yeah keone waxman has made a ton of the late period seagal ones and they all are fucking horrible like they're so boring keone waxman is an enemy of art and cinema i have a dvd that i only picked up used at queen's video rest in peace because when i flipped it over i was like this steven seagal keone waxman picture has a commentary by keone waxman on it <laughs> Did you listen to it? I flipped it on at one point. He's like, oh, yeah, this looks better than I thought it was going to. <laughs> like, I mean, I want him to be like, I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. I mean, as you know, I have a DVD of Sniper Special Ops because it has a commentary by director Fred Olin Ray. It's a good commentary, but he never really talks about Seagal, though. Well, you know, there's probably a reason oh, for oh, that. Oh, you tell me that. You only got that DVD because I told you it had commentary on it. Uh, okay, yeah, maybe that's true. I can't remember, but I, I know I remember finding it at like a 7-Eleven and being mm. so excited to find it there. I didn't seek it out. Oh, man. Keone Waxman directed eight episodes of True Justice, the TV series that was then edited into a bunch of other Seagal movies. Oh, God. Yeah, that's that's fucking shit. I mean, uh, yeah, if you if you got to watch one late period Seagal movie, watch Attrition. It's really funny and stuff happens in it. Yeah, I, yeah the recommendation I would give as well. 